Please take your Bibles and turn them with me to the book of Esther, chapter 8. Esther, chapter 8. We have a couple of more sermons to go in this great book. J.R.R. Tolkien, author of The Hobbit and The Lord of the Rings, wrote a letter to his son, Christopher, where he described a word of his uh, that, that he had coined, that he felt captured the very essence of what stood at the great heart of what makes a story, especially fantasy stories, uh, what makes these stories truly great. And, and the word that he coined was eucatastrophe. Eucatastrophe. Uh, what does that mean? Well, you know what the word catastrophe means, right? A catastrophe is awful. It's the sudden breakdown and collapse and destruction of something that's good. Well, that's a catastrophe. What do you think Tolkien meant by a eucatastrophe? He meant a good catastrophe. It means, according to Tolkien, the sudden happy turn in a, in a story which pierces you with joy and brings you to tears. The eucatastrophe would be a, a great and dramatic reversal where something that was bad and wrong was suddenly turned back and the tables were turned. Well, from chapter 8 on in the book of Esther, we are experiencing a tremendous eucatastrophe. And if you've never read the book of Esther before, it's a very shocking eucatastrophic event. Because the first half of this story is pretty much a downer. It seems like things go from bad to worse for Esther and for Mordecai and for the Jewish people in exile in Persia. Haman, the enemy of the Jews the embodiment of a, of a dark, violent anti-Semitism that was, that was really present throughout the empire, this Haman had gotten King Ahasuerus to approve of an edict that would permit all of the Jew haters throughout the empire to commit genocide and completely wipe out the entire race. And the first Jew that was going to go was Mordecai. He was going to have Mordecai's body hoisted and impaled on a gallows 75 feet high. But things began to turn a bit with what we saw last week in chapter 7. Through the courage of Esther, Haman was exposed and seen to be the villain that he was. And the chapter ends with the king sentencing Haman to hang on his own gallows. And the events in chapter 7 are only the beginning of a massive eucatastrophe. A great reversal as we see uh, those who were doomed to die now be delivered to conquer. And so why don't you stand with me now? We're going to move forward in the, in the book into Esther chapter 8 as we continue our look at these eucatastrophic events in this great story. Esther chapter 8. This is the Word of God. On that day, King Ahasuerus gave to Queen Esther the house of Haman the enemy of the Jews. And Mordecai came before the king, for Esther had told what he was to her. And the king took off his signet ring, which he had taken from Haman, and gave it to Mordecai. And Esther set Mordecai over the house of Haman. Then Esther spoke again to the king. She fell at his feet and wept and pleaded with him to avert the evil plan of Haman the Agagite and the plot that he had devised against the Jews." 
When the king held out the golden scepter to Esther, Esther rose and stood before the king, and she said, If it please the king, and if I have found favor in his sight, and if the thing seems right before the king, and I'm pleasing in his eyes, let an order be written to revoke the letters devised by Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, which he wrote to destroy the Jews who are in all the provinces of the king." For how can I bear to see the calamity that is coming to my people? Or how can I bear to see the destruction of my kindred? Then King Ahasuerus said to Queen Esther and to Mordecai the Jew, Behold, I have given Esther the house of Haman, and they have hanged him on the gallows because he intended to lay hands on the Jews. But you may write as you please with regard to the Jews in the name of the king and seal it with the king's ring. For an edict written in the name of the king and sealed with the king's ring cannot be revoked. The king's scribes were summoned at that time in the third month, which is the month of Sivan, on the 23rd day. And an edict was written according to all that Mordecai commanded concerning the Jews, to the satraps and the governors and the officials of the provinces from India to Ethiopia. 127 provinces, to each province in its own script, and to each people in its own language, and also to the Jews in their script, in their language. And he wrote in the name of King Ahasuerus, and sealed it with the king's signet ring. Then he sent the letters by mounted couriers, riding on swift horses that were used in the king's service, bred from the royal stud, saying, that the king allowed the Jews who were in every city to gather and defend their lives, to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate any armed force of any people or province that might attack them, children and women included, and to plunder their goods. On one day throughout all the provinces of King Ahasuerus, on the thirteenth day of the twelfth month, which is the month of Adar. A copy of what was written was to be issued as a decree in every province, being publicly displayed to all peoples, And the Jews were to be ready on that day to take vengeance on their enemies. So the couriers, mounted on their swift horses that were used in the king's service, rode out hurriedly, urged by the king's command, and the decree was issued in Susa the citadel. Then Mordecai went out from the presence of the king in royal robes of blue and white, with a great golden crown and a robe of fine linen and purple, and the city of Susa shouted and rejoiced. The Jews had light and gladness and joy and honor. And in every province and in every city, wherever the king's command and his edict reached, there was gladness and joy among the Jews, a feast and a holiday. And many from the peoples of the country declared themselves Jews, for fear of the Jews had fallen on them. Let's pray. Father in heaven, this is your holy and inspired word. I pray that you would bless the reading and the preaching of your word in spite of the weakness and the foolishness of the preacher. I pray that you would bless the preaching and the reading of your word uh, in spite of flawed listeners. Father, I pray that your Holy Spirit would illuminate your word and would guide us into your truth. Father, thank you that you have not left us without a word, but you have revealed to us your character, yourself, your plan and your will. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. There are a number of significant eucatastrophic events, a number of significant reversals we see uh, in the book of Esther 
that are, that are I think, a part of, a, of an ongoing pattern we see in the larger story of Scripture. The first thing that I want us to consider is the, uh, the, slot, the, the, the shift from humiliation to exaltation, from humiliation to exaltation. Last week, we saw a great reversal in Haman's life, didn't we? And his reversal was not eucatastrophic. It was a good old-fashioned catastrophe. Things suddenly went very bad for him. In the beginning of chapter 6, he's on top of the world. He's the number two man in the empire. And by the end of chapter 7, Haman is shamed, humiliated, and his body impaled on a stake 75 feet high for everybody to see. That's pretty catastrophic. That's a bad day, don't you think? But we not only see catastrophic reversals... We see you catastrophic reversals, good reversals, part of a larger pattern in Scripture. And here in Esther, we see specifically a rise from the uh, ashes of mourning to a place of royal glory. Not only does Haman fall from power as the king's right-hand man, but who replaces Haman? Look at verse 2. And the king took off his signet ring, which he had taken from Haman, and gave it to Mordecai. Gave it to Mordecai. And Esther, and, and Esther set Mordecai over the house of Haman. Mordecai, a man who just a couple of chapters ago was in torn clothes, in sackcloth, in ashes outside the king's gate, now all of a sudden supplants Haman, and this Jew is, is the most powerful man in Persia outside the king. Look down at verse 15. Then Mordecai went out from the presence of the king in royal robes of blue and white with a great golden crown and a robe of fine linen and purple, and the city of Susa shouted and rejoiced. That is so ironic when you consider that the very kind of honor and glory that Haman coveted was given to Mordecai, who never coveted that kind of glory. Or, and we'll talk more about chapter 9 next week, but if you look at chapter 9, uh, verse 3, it says that the fear of Mordecai had fallen on the people. Who did the people fear before? Haman. He was the king's bulldog. He was the one who would kill you if you didn't bow down before him, but now suddenly it is Mordecai who is feared. If ever there was a rags-to-riches story, this is it. And Mordecai rules from the very home that once belonged to his enemy. And this is a a pattern that we see throughout the entire Bible. Mordecai and Esther are just two in a long line of righteous sufferers that God rewards and exalts in the end. You know, I think about, in the book of 1 Samuel, I think about Hannah, who was a lowly, despised rejected sufferer, and yet in the end God intervened in her life and brought about a great eucatastrophe in her life as the woman who was formerly barren and infertile was now blessed with child. And, and in her prayer of praise to God, she says in First Samuel chapter 2, the Lord kills and brings to life. He brings down the Sheol, that's the grave, and raises up. The Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low And he exalts, he raises up the poor from the dust, he lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes and inherit a seat 
of honor. Those words really describe what happened to Esther and Mordecai. Mordecai was literally sitting in ashes, and he's raised up, and and now he no longer sits on the outside of the king's gate, but now he's on the inside, and he sits at the king's right hand. But it's important to recognize that Mordecai's exaltation and glory only came after suffering and humiliation. Or along the lines of Hannah's prayer, before they're sitting with princes, they're in the ash heap. But nevertheless, while there may be suffering now for the people of God, there's glory later. That pattern of suffering to glory is a theme we see over and over and over again in the Scriptures, and it's pointing us to something more significant than whether or not we may achieve glory and exaltation in this life. Because clearly, for most Christians in the world, there won't be even a hint of glory or exaltation in this age. Not a hint. That pattern of suffering to glory is very important for you and me to realize. Because we all know there are preachers out there on TV. And all they preach is glory, 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 health, wealth, prosperity. And you can easily turn, you can easily twist the book of Esther into a false gospel. I can hear false teachers looking at the book of Esther and saying, well, look what happened to Mordecai. Be a Christian and things will go easy for you. You'll get that job promotion. All your relationships will go well because you have the favor of God on you. Those those aches and pains in your body will fade. As a matter of fact, things will go so well for you that non-Christians will be coming up to you and asking about your success. and, And then you can tell them about Jesus and they'll get saved because they'll want Jesus to do that for them, what they did for you. Don't count on that for a minute. That's not the pattern we see in the Bible. The pattern instead is Acts 14.22, where we see Paul and Barnabas strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, and saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. And why was that a message of encouragement to those disciples? Because that that message is different than Joel Osteen's message. How how is that encouraging to those early disciples? Through many tribulations, you must enter the kingdom of God. How did that help them to continue in the faith? It was an encouragement because Paul and Barnabas reminded those disciples that their present tribulation was normal. Their current afflictions did not mean that God had abandoned them or that they were on the wrong track. Uh, The message of Paul and Barnabas to those disciples was, through many tribulations, you must enter the kingdom of God. That was a message of hope that strengthened them because they were reminded that something better was coming later on. Some of you are going through tremendous suffering and difficulty right now. You feel like you're in the ash heap. You're grieving. You're mourning. Those trials does not mean that God has left you. And the Scriptures remind us that the ash heap is not the ultimate destiny for the believer. Instead, something better is coming, and it is that knowledge that helps us to persevere through the trials, as the Apostle Paul reminds us in Galatians 6, 9, to not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. 
and the glory and exaltation that will emerge after your suffering and that will emerge after my suffering is better than what Mordecai got in Esther. It's better than being the right-hand man to the king of Persia in the empire. What is coming for you, what is coming for me on the other side of this present affliction is resurrection from the dead and ruling the cosmos with Jesus Christ in the next age. As Paul writes to Timothy, if we endure, we will also reign with him. As he, as he writes in 2 Corinthians 4, this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. And that pattern of suffering to glory finds its ultimate climatic expression in the Lord Jesus Christ. The prosperity preachers love to talk about how if you are favored by God, everything will go well for you. Suffering is not even a part of their gospel. And yet, think about this for a second. This is what I'd like to ask the prosperity folks. Who was favored more by God than Jesus? Who loved God more than Jesus? Who did the right thing more than Jesus? This man of whom the Father said, This is my beloved Son, in Him I am well pleased. No man pleased God more than Jesus. No man had the favor of God more than Jesus. And yet, what man has suffered more than Jesus? What man has suffered humiliation and rejection more than Christ? If anybody was sitting in the ash heap, it was Jesus more so than Mordecai, more so than Hannah, more so than Job or any other suffering saint. Isaiah chapter 53 reminds us that he was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, afflicted. That's what he went through to save you and to save me. That's suffering. But that's not the end. Scripture tells us later on, Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That's glory. And Mordecai's rise from the ashes to the seat of power is a reminder of God's promise to all of his suffering children that while suffering is a reality... It's never the end of the story for the people of God. As one preacher once put it, Therefore, let us bear our trials with patience, knowing the reward that God has promised for those who cling to Christ, the righteous sufferer who entered into his reward and has gone ahead to prepare a place for us to bring us into participation with him in his reward in the fullness of time. From humiliation to exaltation, We also see a shift from oppression to deliverance. In the book of Esther, we have uh, the people of God on the verge of extinction at the hands of those who hate them. Let's not downplay the overwhelming opposition and hatred expressed towards the Jewish people throughout the Persian Empire. We focus on Haman, who's the main villain. 
But Haman's hatred towards the Jews is only representative of the animosity that many people in all the provinces uh, had towards them. How do I know that? I know that because in chapter 3, Esther chapter 3, Haman devises the edict that every Jewish man, woman, and child be annihilated in every province of the empire. Now think about this. For that to happen, there must be thousands of people scattered throughout Persia who are willing to make sure Haman's decree is fulfilled. Haman can't do this by himself. Others must join him in his dirty work. And I know that because in chapter 9, nearly a thousand people in Susa, along with 75,000 more people throughout the empire, attack the Jews in an attempt to wipe them out. Make no mistake, it was the enemies of the Jews that were the aggressors in this. And I think that's going to become clear as we go. And we'll talk more about that next, next week. This theme of the people of God being oppressed is another one of those patterns we see throughout Scripture. Again, we'll talk more about this next week, but, but you see this over and over again throughout the Bible. We see, for example, in the book of Exodus... Pharaoh and the Egyptians, they're trying to grind the Israelites into the dust. Later on in the Bible story, we see the Philistines oppressing Israel. Here in the book of Esther, Haman is leading the charge to exterminate the nation. This theme of opposition to the people of God keeps coming back over and over again. But so does the theme of deliverance from God's enemies. And, and, and not just deliverance, but deliverance through a mediator. Look with me back in Esther chapter 8, starting in verse 3. Then Esther spoke again to the king. She fell at his feet and wept and pleaded with him to avert the evil plan of Haman the Agagite and the plot that he had devised against the Jews. When the king held out the golden scepter to Esther, Esther rose and stood before the king. And she said, if it please the king, if I found favor in his sight, and if the thing seems right before the king... And I'm pleasing in his eyes. Let an order be written to revoke the letters devised by Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, which he wrote to destroy the Jews who are in all the provinces of the king. For how can I bear to see the calamity that is coming to my people? Or how can I bear to see the destruction of my kindred? What's Esther doing here? Esther is pleading with the king on behalf of her people. She becomes a representative of the Jews. She speaks on their behalf. She stands between the king, whom has issued a decree of death, and the people to whom death is coming. Verse 7. Then King Ahasuerus said to Queen Esther and to Mordecai the Jew, Behold, I have given Esther the house of Haman, and they have hanged him on the gallows, because he intended to lay hands on the Jews. But you may write as you please with regard to the Jews in the name of the king, and seal it with the king's ring, for an edict written in the name of the king and sealed with the king's ring, cannot be revoked. That's a bit of a plot twist. Reading this for the first time, you might think, hey, things have been turning around. Uh, Things are starting to look up. Haman is hanged. You know the king thinks Esther is irresistible and is obviously smitten by her. Was it not the king who said in the last chapter, I'll give you anything? even up to half my kingdom, you'd think that all Esther would have to do is bat her eyelashes and the king then would just say, I'm ripping up this death edict. But that doesn't happen. 
They, they have this law where once the king gives a decree, it's a done deal. So the king cannot cancel his own decree, this decree that, that is bringing about the destruction of the Jews. But there is something that can be done. The decree can be reversed, but not by eliminating it. The king instead reminds Esther and Mordecai that the balance of power has shifted. Haman's dead. You're not helpless anymore, Esther. You're not on the outside anymore, Mordecai. Look at verse 8. You may write as you please with regard to the Jews in the name of the king and seal it with the king's ring. In other words, he's saying, I can't do anything, Esther. But guess what? You can, and I won't stand in your way. Mordecai now has the royal signet ring that used to be on Haman's finger. Mordecai rules as visor. He's second in command now. Sure, the law cannot be technically revoked, but a new one can supersede the old. So in verses 9 to 14, the scribes are summoned. An edict is written, sent to all the satraps and governors and the officials of the provinces from India to Ethiopia, 127 provinces, each in their appropriate language, sent on the fastest horses. And now the Jews are empowered to band together in militia-like fashion with the backing of the state to defend themselves against any who would try to enforce Haman's decree. In this decree, interestingly enough, in the new decree, it is the Jews who are to destroy and kill and annihilate any armed force that attacks them and to plunder their goods on the 13th day of the month of Adar. And if you're paying close attention, this should all sound very familiar. The description of the decree, the mention of the scribes and government officials, the mention of this decree going out to all the provinces, to all the people in their own language, the the language of kill, destroy, and annihilate, the mention of the 13th day of Adar, that should all sound familiar. All of this is nearly word for word of what we see in Esther chapter 3 describing Haman's decree. That's no accident. The author of the book of Esther is showing you that Mordecai's edict, as one preacher once put it, that, that Mordecai's edict is a blow-by-blow undoing of Haman's decree. It's a catastrophe. It's a complete and total reversal of the enemy's plan. Now, with that said, it's very important to notice one key difference between Haman's decree and Mordecai's. And maybe you've already picked this up. And it's in verse 11. It says that the king allowed the Jews who were in every city to gather and defend their lives. To destroy, to kill, and to annihilate any armed force of any people or province that might attack them. The decree empowered the Jews to defend themselves against any people that might attack them. It was not a decree of aggression like Haman's. It's very important. The Jews weren't being empowered just to kind of go around and just indiscriminately start mowing people down at random in the marketplace or whatever, but instead to destroy those who tried to destroy them. The decree empowered the Jews to defend themselves against any people that might attack them. So that's important to keep in mind when you get to chapter 9. And it talks about the Jews killing hundreds in the city of Susa and 75,000 throughout the empire. 
Those 75,000 people were not random, innocent people just kind of sitting around one day. Those 75,000 people were people who hated the Jews and were going to carry out Haman's decree, and the Jews fought back and destroyed them instead. In fact, you can turn over to chapter 9, verse 1, where it says, In the twelfth month, which is the month of Adar, on the thirteenth day of the same, when the king's command and edict were about to be carried out, on the very day when the enemies of the Jews hoped to gain the mastery over them, the reverse occurred. The Jews gained mastery over those who hated them. The tables were turned. It was a catastrophe. Verse 2 says, No one could stand against them, for the fear of them had fallen on all the peoples. That kind of language is very reminiscent of, of earlier in the Old Testament when the children of Israel are moving into the promised land and the Scriptures uh, say that the hearts of their enemies melted with fear. There was a divine fear coming on the people that gave Israel the edge in battle. It seems like that's what's happening in Esther. The victory is stunningly overwhelming. And I think you see what we've noticed throughout Esther, that a sovereign, unseen God is working behind the scenes to accomplish His will. But do not miss the fact that deliverance of God began with God working through a mediator. In this case, two mediators, Esther and Mordecai working for the good of their people. This pattern of a mediator saving the people is one of the major themes in Scripture. It was was, uh, in the Exodus where we see Moses delivering Israel from the Egyptians. He serves as a mediator between God and the people. In 1 Samuel, it's David who represents his people and delivers them from Goliath and the Philistines. All of these Old Testament types and shadows are showing us something about what God is going to do later on and sending a better mediator who brings about a better deliverance. Jesus Christ comes into the world to save His people, the people who, like the Hebrews in Exodus, are in bondage. But it's a spiritual bondage. It's a worse kind of bondage. Who, like the Israelites in 1 Samuel, have a fearsome enemy, but it's an enemy more powerful and terrifying than Goliath. Who, uh, people who, like the Jews in Esther, are under the sentence of death. But it's, it's a worse kind of death. It's a spiritual death. You and I were in bondage to sin. You and I held captive by Satan. You and I were condemned to eternal hell because of our sins, but Jesus Christ came into the world as our mediator, as our representative. And the way that Jesus brought about deliverance was a better way than the mediators that came before Him. Moses lifted up his staff, and the floodwaters wiped out the Egyptians. David crushed the head of Goliath with a sling and a stone. Esther and Mordecai had Haman and his sons impaled on a stake. Jesus doesn't deliver us in that way by obliterating his enemies. Now, Jesus could have done that. Jesus could have come into the world and killed the devil. But if if all Jesus would have done was wipe out Satan and wipe out all the demons, that wouldn't have brought us deliverance. If all Jesus would have done was wipe out the enemies of God, we all would be wiped out. Because we're all sinners. All mankind left to themselves stands before God with a clenched fist. 
And that's why the deliverances in the Old Testament, as spectacular and as inspiring and as instructive and as wonderful as they are, they are incomplete. They're pointing us to something better. Jesus came to earth not to kill his enemies, but to be killed by them. In the book of Esther, you have Haman impaled on a stake. That's that's a gruesome symbol of God's disfavor and curse. As the Scripture says, cursed is anyone who hangs on a tree. But for your deliverance and for my deliverance, something more is needed. And Jesus came not to bring down the curse of God on us, but to bear God's curse Himself on the cross, hanging on the tree. Not on His own behalf, not for His own sins. He had none. He bears the curse that we deserve. He takes on the punishment that was our due. That punishment was all poured out on Jesus instead. Esther is a mediator that is prepared to die for her people to save them, but she doesn't, and her death isn't necessary. But with Jesus, it was the only way. Jesus represented his people in a way that Esther or Moses or David never could, though he was without sin. He represented sinners and suffered and died as a sinner, paying our debt so that all who receive Christ receive his payments. And the sentence of judgment is turned back and reversed. Our fine is paid, and we are free. But it gets better. When J.R.R. Tolkien coined that term, eucatastrophe, this idea of sudden happy reversal, of evil undone, he said it made for such a great story because it is a sudden glimpse of truth. It perceives, he said, that this is indeed how things really do work in the great world. He meant heaven by that. For which our nature was made. And I concluded, Tolkien said, by saying that the resurrection was the greatest eucatastrophe possible and produces that essential emotion, Christian joy. You see, it's not just a debt paid. It's a conquered grave. The Jews' deliverance from imminent death in Esther is great. But in Christ, we see death actually reversed and turned backwards as he emerges from the tomb three days later. And all who trust in Christ will overcome the grave just like Jesus did. Yes, there is one more eucatastrophe to come for the people of God. Christ, our great mediator, has purchased and secured it for you, this resurrection that we have to look forward to, to God be the glory. Let's take a look at one more reversal in chapter 8. So we have a move from humiliation to exaltation, a reversal from oppression to deliverance, and then we have a turning from mourning to joy. Tolkien said that the resurrection was the greatest eucatastrophe possible and produces that essential emotion, Christian joy. We see a preview of that here in Esther. Remember the end of Esther chapter 3? What was the response in Susa when the decree was issued, uh, the decree to annihilate the Jews? What was the response? It says, the city was thrown into confusion. 
Earlier in the book, you have Mordecai mourning with sackcloth and ashes. You, you have Esther and all the Jews and Susa fasting and crying out to God for help. That's all reversed now. Look at verse 16, chapter 8. The Jews had light and gladness and joy and honor. And in every province and in every city, wherever the king's command and his edict reached, there was gladness and joy among the Jews, a feast and a holiday. And then you have a very shocking reversal at the end of uh, verse 17. And, and many from the peoples of the country declared themselves Jews, <laughs> for fear of, uh, of the Jews had fallen on them. People who had once distanced themselves from the Jews now are counting themselves uh, among them. Hey, I'm a Jew. We're good, right? We're tight. I'm one of y'all. They said y'all in the southern Persian empire. Um, <laughs> Now, not everyone uh, was declaring themselves Jews or wanting to identify with the Jews. We know that for sure. We're going to see that in the next chapter. But what a great turnaround this is. But notice that the joy and the gladness and the celebration is not a celebration of a victory won, but of a victory promised, a victory anticipated. This decree that secured their salvation was not yet fully realized. But nevertheless, there's an outbreak of joy and celebration amongst the Jews because they know that the promise will soon be fulfilled. Victory was certain. That situation of the Jews in Esther chapter 8 is not unlike your situation today. We can look back on an event that has secured our own salvation and deliverance, the cross of Christ, and yet we still await the full experience and fulfillment of that salvation. We enjoy it in part now. But we know that something more is coming later on. Turn over to Romans chapter 8. And uh, this was actually read earlier. Now, of course, one of the most famous passages in the Bible in in Romans chapter 8 is is verse 28. And I read this to you guys last week. Verse 28, which says, We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to His purpose. Typically, we stop at verse 28. And we say, amen, and we close the book. But we ought to keep reading. Look at verse 29. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Notice the tense of the verbs there. What tense is this all written in? It's past tense, even at the end of the sentence. Those he justified, he also glorified. Why is Paul using past tense? Why doesn't he say, and those whom he justified, he also will glorify? That'd be true. That'd be a true statement. The reason why is because that's Paul's way of saying that the fulfillment of the promise is as certain as if it already happened. The future glory that awaits you is a sure thing. It's a done deal. It's going to happen to every child of God. You can count on it. You can bank on it. You can put your hope in it. If He's called you, if He's justified you, guess what? You'll also be glorified. Guaranteed. That's what Paul's saying. One more great catastrophe is coming. The trumpet of the archangel will sound. The sky will be rolled back like a scroll. 
Christ will descend in power and glory and every eye will see him. And the dead in Christ will emerge from their graves. And we who are still alive will be changed in a moment in time. And the enemies of Christ and his church will be overwhelmed and finally conquered. There will be a new heavens. There will be a new earth. And every tear will be wiped. Every sickness banished. Death itself will give way to life. Suffering will give way to eternal maximum joy. The ways of the corrupted old order will be turned back and reversed. And all things will be made new. So if the Jews in Persia could celebrate and rejoice because of the promise of a political and military deliverance, how much more should you and I rejoice over the grand eucatastrophe that has happened through Christ and that will come at the end of the age? This, this bloody cross and this empty tomb is the proof that this promise reversal will come to pass. It's a down payment guaranteeing what's going to happen later on. I can't wait till Easter. In a couple of weeks, we're going to celebrate big time. You better be here for that. It's going to be awesome. Of course, we celebrate this every week. It's why we meet on Sunday. It's why Sunday, we call Sunday the Lord's Day. Every Sunday should be a celebration of the resurrection of Christ, of that great eucatastrophe. At the end of, um, at the end of Tolkien's series, The Lord of the Rings, the character Sam, one of my favorite characters in the book, wakes up and he finds that his friends are alive. And he looks at Gandalf and he says, I thought you were all dead. But then I thought I was dead myself. Is everything sad going to come untrue? What's happened to the world? Is everything sad going to come untrue? And I love how Tolkien describes Gandalf's answer. Gandalf says, a great shadow has departed. And then he laughed, and the sound was like music, or like water in a parched land. That's the promise we have. Everything sad is going to come untrue, in a sense, as if it never happened. Christ is raised from the dead. Death is turned back. Jesus wins. The empty tomb marks the greatest reversal in history, the greatest eucatastrophe of them all, and as a result, a great shadow has departed. We don't worship a fairy tale. We don't worship a legend. We don't worship a ghost. We worship a man who is in heaven right now, and he sits as a real man with real flesh with real blood, with real bone, with real Jewish DNA in his cells, who sees you now in your suffering, in your trial. He has not forgotten you. You are his bride. And the reason he left was not to abandon you, but to prepare a place for you. And he has promised to come back and get you and bring you to his father's house so that where he is, you will also be forever and ever. And that promise doesn't automatically eliminate all of our sorrow. But as Paul tells the church in Thessalonica, we do not mourn as those who have no hope. Because of the cross, our mourning is now mixed with the element of hope and rejoicing and the sure expectation 
of something more. As Paul writes to the church in Corinth, we are sorrowful, but always rejoicing. That's the characteristic of the Christian life in this age. Sorrow, sorrowful, but always rejoicing. But there will come a day where that verse won't be entirely true. Half of that verse will not apply anymore. There's coming a day where we won't be sorrowful. We will only be always rejoicing. As it says in Proverbs 16, in your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you so much for this incredible story in the book of Esther. And we thank you for the truths that you reveal about yourself in the book of Esther and about how you work providentially and about how you save and about how you keep your promises. The God of the book of Esther is the God of today, of 2016. And you still keep your promises and you still do what you say. Even if we look around and it seems like things are falling apart, even if we look around and we, it seems like things are spinning out of control, we're reminded in books like Esther and in other parts of Scripture that we cannot trust what our physical eyes see, but that we have to cling by faith to the promises of God and the assurance that you're always working on behalf of your people. Praise God for that. Father, help us to remember that. And thank you so much for an empty cross, and for an empty tomb, and the promise of even more to come. Help us to rest and stand on the promises of God. In Jesus' name, amen.